Welcome back to In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. This show is an open discussion of the people, ideas, and methods behind commercial real estate. I'm your host, Paul Eaton. Our guest today is Paul Caseberg. Paul is a Chief Investment Officer at MG Properties Group. He is responsible for the firm's acquisition, disposition, and capital market activities. Paul, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. I'd like to start out with you know, your background and your path into commercial real estate. And I saw that, I guess you went to high school in Hawaii. What was that like? I did. I went to Punahou School and it was really different. My dad was an engineer and he went over there to work on roads and bridges. And so I moved over when I was nine years old. And so it was living in Honolulu is like the difference between LA and, and Honolulu is about the difference between New York City and LA. I mean, it's just really different. And, um, so coming to the mainland, it, it's, uh, it gave kind of a different pace of life and there's a different culture there. It's not a culture of uh, showing off what you have. It's a culture of, um, you know, it's just very low key. And, and so I love Hawaii. I miss it. Wish I could get back there more. I've never been out to go sometime. And then you went to Notre Dame and that's a big change as far as the weather, the cold winters, a big change from uh, Hawaii. I went with one pair of jeans and one sweatshirt. So that was a rude awakening when we were down in the negative uh, digits the first winter, but it was fun and any weather is okay for a couple of years. And, and I was so busy. I spent all my time in the library anyway, so it didn't matter. Well, tell me about your path into commercial real estate. I was a mechanical engineer undergrad, and I left undergrad and went straight to Northrop Grumman, which was TRW at the time, working on satellites. And so I, I loved kind of the math and technical things. And while I was there, I went back to business school and got pulled into the venture capital side of the business. So we had an in-house venture capital group that licensed our IP and did transactions with startups. And I really loved that. I, I liked the transactions. I got pulled into corporate M&A, which was also a lot of fun. And But being at such a big company, I felt like I kind of got lost in the company. It was so huge. We'd do a $300 million acquisition and no one would notice because it just didn't move the needle because the company was so big. And so it didn't feel very tangible. And I had some friends that were in commercial real estate and I talked to them about it. And it seemed like something that had all the fun that I liked from transactions, but was a little bit more tangible. You could actually go look at the building that you were working on and see it change and you know, drive around the neighborhood. And so I liked that a lot and um, made the switch about 20 years ago and have been very glad I did. It's been a lot of fun. Some years more than others. Absolutely. So now you're uh, at MG Property Group. That's right. I've been at MG since 2010 and MG is a multifamily owner operator. So we have about 22,000 units. We're in Washington, Oregon, California, Arizona, Nevada. So we're just West Coast based. We self-manage, so we try to keep in regions where we can just hop on a plane, get there and back in a day, really just keep a close eye on our properties. And so I've been there since 2010, and it's been a great 10 years for the multifamily industry, for sure. Definitely a lot has changed in the last 10 years. How many doors does MG acquire annually on average? So we have been running you know, a couple thousand. We have been buying about a billion dollars a year of multifamily for the last couple of years when COVID hit. We bought about 500 million. So you know, everything just shut down. I'm sure it was, you know, it was similar for you where no one knew what to expect for a couple of months. And it wasn't clear if it was going to be, you know, just uh, blood in the streets in terms of asset values. No one knew what was going to happen with performance. And so that everything shut down. We got started getting back on planes in the second quarter and we closed our first deal either July or August of last year. 
Uh, so we got back to it. So we ended up buying about 500 million of assets last year. Wish we could have bought more, but there just wasn't much to buy. And then this year has been pretty busy. We've uh, purchased about 1.2 billion. I think we're on track for 1.5, maybe 1.7. So it'll be a pretty busy year. What is MG's funding source for these transactions? So our portfolio is about 85% both private syndicated capital. We have about 1,200 private investors, RIAs, uh, family offices. We also do some family office JVs in there. And then about 15% is institutional joint ventures. So groups like you know, Blackstone, Rockwood, Intercontinental. So it kind of depends on the deal. We try to mix and match the asset strategy with the investor and match up the capitalization with you know what we're trying to do with it. With our private capital, we tend to be very long-term oriented, you know, we're seven, 10 year fixed rate debt, really buying deals to fix them up and just hold them for cash flow. With our institutional partners, a lot of times that's a shorter hold period. And so we're going into add value and um, fix and flip. So it's a little bit of a mix and match depending on who we're working with. Do you see that the volume of transactions now has returned to pre-COVID? Yeah, in our space it had, well, I'll caveat that. So in our space, it has overall, I think on average, but what we're seeing is this really big disparity between different markets and different asset types. So for instance, Phoenix has a tremendous amount of volume because it's been performing so well with COVID. The, the delinquency there is really low. It's, it's right around where it was pre-COVID. For a while, it was be- below what it was pre-COVID, uh, strangely. And there's so many jobs going there. There's so much in-migration that we're having our new lease tradeouts are close to 30% on our Phoenix portfolio. And so transaction volume there is huge. It's bigger than it was. If you look at a market like the Bay Area or downtown Seattle, those markets have been so hard hit by COVID in terms of people have moved out of the cities to suburbs. They've moved to you know, lower cost or just you know, more pleasant areas where they always wanted to live. You know, and so we're seeing those markets operationally perform worse. And because there's no distress in, you know, most of the owners of institutional multifamily have pretty low leverage that they don't have to sell. So they're just holding those assets. So the transaction volume is really down in those markets. So we're seeing definitely, if you look at the average, we're about kind of where we were pre-COVID, but it's really different depending on the market and the submarket. It's very likely that as of June or January 1st, 2022, we'll have a, a higher capital gains tax rate. Many institutional owners it doesn't matter to them because they're nonprofits. But many private investors, it will affect them. Do you think there will be a bump in deals coming to market before the end of this year? Or have you seen it, a bump already? I mean, if people are going to come to market. They need to do it now to get the due diligence done. Yeah, right now we're looking at deals that are tracking toward the end of the year. So, you know, deals that we're looking at today and underwriting where we're going to have offers due in the next couple of weeks, you know, those are probably looking at kind of end of November, December time period for closing. I don't think the volume is exceptional for those deals right now, but we are hearing motivation from a couple of those owners. And we've had especially a couple off-market deals come to us where owners said, you know, I just want to transact this because I don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of years, you know, with taxes. And so we're seeing a little bit of that, but not a tremendous distortion. I'd say, you know, probably a bigger, an example is a bigger change we saw was in Seattle. They instituted a transfer tax that was really onerous about 
two years ago, three years ago. And we saw this flood of deals hit the market. And then the next year was really dry because all those deals were pushed forward. We're seeing a little bit of that, but not too much. And there are a lot of moving parts with the potential tax changes, whether or not, you know, are exchanges impacted? You know, how exactly do those tax changes get rolled out? And there's a lot of uncertainty. And so it's made it really hard for people to plan. I haven't seen a bump too much at all in our space. So you're seeing the same, but we're seeing. How was the effect of the eviction moratorium on your portfolio? So it's hard to isolate the eviction moratorium because there are a lot of COVID impacts that are all going on at the same time. You know, what we're seeing is you have migration patterns, you have unemployment benefits, you have the eviction moratorium, you have the direct impact of COVID on residents. And so all those things are kind of interplaying. And so it's, it's hard to kind of strip out that one thing. What we are seeing in our portfolio right now is our occupancy is extremely high. So we're about 97% occupied. We usually try to track to around 95 to optimize revenue. I mean, we have software just like airlines do where we have uh, revenue management software. And if your occupancy is too high, it means you're not pushing rents enough. And if your occupancy is too low, then you, know, you, you have an opportunity to get more residents in. So usually 95% is about the sweet spot. We're running about 97% right now. Part of that has to do with the fact that we can't evict people. In most of our markets, the national situation with the eviction moratorium is irrelevant because we have state or local eviction moratoriums in place. So the situation is a little bit different by submarket, but overall our occupancy is really high. We're seeing really strong rent growth at the same time because we have very low availability. And so that software is really driving up our new leases. And our turnover is about the same as it was pre-COVID. You know, we're kind of running in that 40%-ish range, which is pretty normal. So overall, revenue is up. Operationally, the deals are doing better than they did pre-COVID. But it's a little bit unclear what's going to happen as that eviction moratorium goes away. And also, I think with everything, it's just a little bit unclear as the, the unemployment benefits go away. You know, what does that do to employment trends? You know, I think there's a lot that we're going to learn in the next six months. That's I'd say it's very hard to predict some of the things that happened with COVID. Even right after COVID hit, I couldn't have necessarily predicted how we would be today. It's been a very unusual situation. How often is your pricing updated on a daily basis? Yeah. Or weekly basis? We do it every day. We actually have our pricing analyst who we have an analyst who just focuses on pricing our portfolio looking at Yieldstar, which is the software that we use to price our portfolio. And she works remotely in Spain. She moved there a couple of years ago and it's perfect because she can look at all our pricing and figure it out in the middle of the night. It rolls to all our properties and it's fresh and waiting there in the morning. So remote work works really well in some cases. I'm a, we're a big fan of remote workers as well. Is it Yieldstar? Does it look out to surrounding properties as data points as well as your own occupancy and yields? And then it provides a, maybe an estimate that you massage and then roll out to all your properties? Exactly. So basically it has access to a lot of properties that are in the market. And so it looks at all the trends at all those properties. It anonymizes those. And then it looks at the trends at your property. You can take into account what your turnover is, you know, what kind of traction you're getting on new leases. And so it'll continue to adjust. And so I think the difference between having pricing software like Yieldstar or LRO in place right now versus the olden days where you would just you know, look at your prices and look at your comps and try to figure out what you should choose is it really moves faster. So what we see is when your occupancy goes up, it really aggressively pushes rents up much faster than we used to as an industry. And as occupancy goes down, it really pushes rents down. 
And so there's a lot more volatility in rents than there used to be. And pricing software was really only rolled out broadly with a lot of institutional owners after the financial crisis. And so COVID was a little bit unusual because it was just such a different type of crisis. But we really haven't had a huge economic downturn to test the market being on this software. So it'll be really interesting, I think, to see how that gets managed you know, when the economy suffers again. It did pretty well during COVID. And as an owner, you can set floors and you can kind of set some guardrails on it. So you don't have to just let it you know, go crazy. You can use a little bit of judgment, which is what we do with our pricing analysts. Another change coming along that everyone's seeing is the potential of increase of inflation. How do you see that's going to affect multifamily investments? That's another situation where there are a lot of moving parts that are involved with inflation, right? So clearly inflation, if it just kind of affects everything evenly, I think that's probably net positive for multifamily investors because, you know, revenue, if it's growing at a, you know, 5% rate and our expenses, which are growing at a 5% rate is going to result in higher growth of NOI because our expenses typically around 30, 40% revenue, our expense ratios are, are kind of in that range. So just from an NOI perspective, that's positive mathematically. We tend to buy deals with long-term fixed rate debt with our private capital. So we're locking in that coupon today. We've been in an environment for the last 30 years where rates have been going down. And so using long-term fixed rate debt has been painful for a long time, <laughs> but it matches up with our business plan. And so it's a way for us to limit risk and that's why we do it. But you know, there's, a, there's potentially a situation where if rates were to go the other way and inflation were to go the other way, all of a sudden that long-term debt is gonna become an asset as well. Also, cap rates are really a function partially of interest rates, but also of just investment capital flows. And so in an inflationary environment, you know, real estate is an asset class where investors tend to migrate to it. And so I can see that you know, benefiting all types of real estate as investors look to that for cash flow that is gonna adjust with inflation. So that, you know, that, that extra demand is going to help out kind of offset the increase in cap rates we'd otherwise have. We're seeing very large increases in construction costs here in Texas, in industrial. And we're also seeing really large increases in lease rates. Now, a lot of that is because of the inbound migration of companies coming into our markets that are pushing the rates. But it seems on the ground that we're seeing costs rapidly rise where we're operating. Apart from COVID, do you see renters migrating towards high cost dense environments or to lower cost suburban areas? We're definitely seeing residents go from high cost urban areas out to lower cost suburban areas. And so there's kind of two parts of that. One is residents are moving from, you know, downtown LA out to the Inland Empire. So really moving you know, within the same kind of general metro area out to more lower cost areas. And then there are a lot of residents who are moving from downtown LA to Salt Lake City. You know, they're really you know, changing states. They're really making a more kind of permanent lifestyle move. So I think how much of that sticks, those are going to be treated differently as employment comes back in urban areas. And obviously with the Delta variant, that's really slowed down the kind of reopening of work for a lot of industries. But as workplaces open back up, I think it's going to be easier for people who are commuting to the suburbs. It's going to be a lot harder for people who have moved to a different state. So you know, we're definitely seeing both of that. At the same time, we're seeing jobs move you know, more permanently to those other states like Phoenix. You know, Vegas has actually been pulling in some out-of-state employment. So I think those metros are going to do well long term. And that's a trend that's been happening since well before COVID. 
So this migration trend to the suburbs is the suburbs have been outperforming the cities for many years. This has just really accelerated it. And we'll see how much of that is going to bounce back. Do you think that COVID has accelerated the acceptance of remote working? I think it has. I think we move forward two or three or four or five years in this process. I agree. I mean, I think for sure it has forced companies to embrace remote work, like it or not. And I think a lot of companies, including our company, have come to appreciate that it's actually pretty effective in a lot of cases. You know, it's not perfect. There are some benefits and drawbacks to it. But I think you know, before COVID, the proportion of remote workers was extremely low, right? Low single digits. And so even if that doubles or triples, it's still going to end up being a fairly low proportion of the overall workforce. But I think there's a lot more opportunity to use it. Most of our workforce is remote and it's been like the way for about four or five years. So we're a bit ahead of the curve on that. But you do give up, obviously, some functionality. Of course, you make up for that in other areas. It's worked out well for us. Looking forward out over the next 10 years, where do you see the largest opportunities in real estate investment, multifamily or otherwise? Yeah. And for us, so we only do multifamily. So we have this little box that we, you know, this is what we do and we try to be good at that and we don't go outside of it. I think when COVID hit, it made me a little bit envious of other groups who can kind of do anything because it would have been fun to go out there and look for opportunities in hospitality or office, you know, or retail because of this. I'm sure it's a really interesting place to be. Multifamily has been a great place to be, and I feel very fortunate that I've been in multifamily. Obviously, you're in industrial, which is probably the only industry that's done you know better than multifamily during COVID. But with multifamily, it's just been a very safe place to be. And so I think what I like about multifamily over the long term is on a risk-adjusted basis, it tends to really perform well. It's not always the top performing asset class, but it often over time is one of the most low volatility asset classes. So I like that aspect of it. I'm just, you know, going forward, that's one of the things I think is going to continue over the next 10 years. Clearly, COVID has kind of bolstered demand for housing and that's benefited multifamily. I think it'll be really interesting to see what happens with the single family for rent space. That's something that's growing really quickly and it's becoming a lot more institutionalized over the last couple of years. There are a lot of communities that are being built. You know, they're like multifamily, but they're single family communities meant to be rented out. And so that's a new trend that we're seeing, especially in kind of lower cost areas like Phoenix. There are a lot of those. And so that's going to be a really interesting new space that I think residents really like. And there's a lot of demand for that right now. You know, I think your space in industrial is going to be a fascinating space to see over the next uh, 10 years as well as we sort out where people are going to live as, you know, Amazon and, uh, you know, companies like that, all these, you know, distribution engines, you know, are firmed up. I think that demand is going to just continue to grow. Apart from single family rental developments that are being built for that purpose. Let's go back to the financial crisis when some large institutions dove in and bought thousands of single family for the purpose of rental and then ultimately to spin it off or sell. Before the financial crisis, the opinion was that would be an impossible or a very difficult task because trying to manage a portfolio in Denver or Dallas of a few hundred homes is incredibly difficult for maintenance and for other reasons. What changed? It was the technology that some new platforms allowed people to better manage the maintenance and just the operational difficulties. What allowed this to happen? This, it's been a sea change in the last 10 years. 
in this product type? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. I think a couple of things change. And I can actually speak from a little bit of experience on this because before I was at MG, actually right before the financial crisis, I worked starting up a hedge fund to buy non-performing residential debt. And then the financial crisis hit and it got to be a very interesting space to be in <laughs> very quickly. We were kind of small potatoes. You know, we were investing millions, but not billions. And what we found was that was a, as purely an investor, it was a trade. It wasn't a business. It was just this opportunity in the market that, you know, we could go in and capitalize on, but we couldn't build a long-term business on it. What we found was our competition very quickly jumped into that. And that was the Blackstones and the Carlisles of the world. And they could put to work billions of dollars. And when you can put to work billions of dollars in that space, you can build the kind of scale in a market that allows you to be tremendously more efficient. And we struggled as a small operator because like you said, if you have a hundred you know, houses in a market, that's really hard to operate. Just from a practical perspective, they're so spread out and just getting maintenance dealt with. I mean, it's just too hard. The costs are too high in comparison to something like multifamily where you're super efficient and your expense ratios are low. But if you have thousands of homes in a market, it's all of a sudden you can put these systems in place that are a lot more efficient. And I think that's what really differentiated it was the scale kind of coming into that space and then the resident acceptance of that as a normal thing to do. I'm going to go out and rent a house, you know, from an institution or from a company as opposed to just, you know, a mom and pop operator. And so that you know, because there's that scale now, all of a sudden you have companies advertising it. And so there's a lot more demand specifically for that product. Now it's kind of fed into it. I think technology has been a big part of that as well. And I've, I've talked to a lot of operators who have really focused on investing millions of dollars into the technology that's necessary to run that process efficiently. And I think that's key too, because it's all about driving down your expense ratio and you need technology to be able to do that, especially now you know, with COVID in the multifamily space, we really, it forced us to change in that we really had to embrace things like remote tours. There's technology now that we can use where residents can come, you know, on their phone, they say, I want to take a tour of a two bedroom unit. They go up, a box opens with the keys in it. It gives them directions to the unit. You walk into the unit. It answers any questions for you. If you have it, you walk around at your own pace. You go back, you drop the keys off, you close it and you go and you never talk to a human in person. And the first tours like that were actually pre-COVID. I remember going to one in Phoenix and everyone was kind of scratching their head about, is this the future or is this just crazy? And uh, it seemed amazing that anyone would want to take a tour and not actually interact with another human being. And what we're finding is there are a lot of benefits to that. Some people just, they don't want to be sold something. Right. They just want to go look at the unit and then they want to make a decision and that's it. Don't sit there and sell me on this. And you know, a lot of people want to go after they get off of work and it's late at night and the office isn't open and this allows them to go to a unit that they otherwise couldn't tour. And so there are all these kind of you know hidden benefits to this technology. And I think probably the answer for us and for a lot of groups is going to be a blend of the two. We're going to you know allow in-person tours. We're also going to augment that with technology. And so I think technology, you know, real estate in general and multifamily especially has been really slow to adopt technology. And that is starting to really change quickly, especially with all the money that's going into the venture capital world in the real estate space. Let's talk a little bit about your acquisitions, your process and your operations. You mentioned you are self-managed and I think that's a, a very large advantage in your space. 
Have you always been self-managed and was it difficult to move over to that process, the self-management process? Yeah. So since the company was founded, the company was founded over 30 years ago by Mark Lieberman. That's the MG in MG Properties Group. And um, we were, uh, Mark started the company with you know, small local investments here in San Diego and self-managed our properties since the very beginning. So he was out there collecting rent checks, you know, on site, dealing with issues as they came up. And so we've always had this culture of self-managing. And as we've grown, we've kept that all, you know, the entire time. Managing for us is, well, certainly you hit certain portfolio sizes where managing becomes much, much more efficient. And so at 3,000 or 5,000 units, you know, you can do it, but it's not very efficient. We're at 23,000 units now. So all of a sudden it's much more efficient than it used to be. It's still not a huge profit center for us. We really do management to add value as owners to our property because any company that you hire to handle property management for you is not going to care as much about your asset as you do. And so for us, this is a way to just keep a really close eye on what's happening at our properties. You know, day to day, if something comes up, we're hearing about it. You know, the folks who are on our management side are incentivized just like everyone else to make these properties worth more. And so there's just a different mindset that gets brought you know, with self-management, you know, setting aside the fact that, you know, it's a profit center because just not a very profitable business on its own. So that's why we self-manage. We just really want to add value. And it's been a benefit for us. And I think especially it was a benefit in COVID because we're so many changes happening so fast that if you're working with an outside company and they're working with other companies there's too much coordination to really move quickly. But we were able to sit down in a conference room all together with our investments folks, our property management folks, our asset management folks, and just say, this is what's happening today. What makes sense? And make those changes you know, right there that day and roll that out. And so we were able to be really nimble, I think, with COVID in a way that would have been really hard if we outsourced our management. On your acquisitions, how do you source your acquisitions through brokers, outreach to other institutional owners? other methods? Yeah. So our typical acquisition, I think our average acquisition size is about $90 million that, you know, kind of goes up. It ranges from somewhere around 50 million up to about 200 million in that space. For the most part, we're working with institutional counterparties and a lot of institutional counterparties have to go through a formal marketing process to be able to sell a property. So we definitely participate in all the marketed you know, brokered processes that are out there in our space. So if something's marketed and it falls within a certain box, we're underwriting it, we're touring it, we're offering on it no matter what, as long as it you know, meets our investment criteria. And so that's one kind of column of how we chase investment opportunities. You know, the other column is we are very active buyers and sellers. You know, we sell something around eight or nine deals on average a year. You know, we're going to probably buy 15 deals this year, maybe a little bit more. So we're out there in the marketplace a lot. And that means that we have a lot of direct relationships with other owners because we bought and sold from them before. And so about 80% of our acquisitions come from sellers who we've transacted with before. And I think one of the things that we've done over the last couple of years that I think differentiates us from other groups is we really, really always do what we say we're going to do when we buy a property. And so if we say we're going to buy it at a certain price, we don't go through the due diligence process and retrade on price because of some little thing. We just stick to it. We suck it up and we buy the property and we move on to the next one. And as a result of that, we get a lot of off-market deal flow from people who we have bought from before because they trust us. They know we're going to do what we say that we're going to do. And then even on the marketed side, 
when deals are going through a sales process, we get a lot of phone calls at the end that say essentially, hey, you guys are short on price, but if you get to this price, we want to sell it to you, it's yours. And so we get a lot of last looks on deals as well. So there are off-market deals and there are marketed deals and there's a lot in between. And so we, you know, we just cover all of that, try to dig up deals wherever we can. It's tough to find deals. So anything we can do to find deals, uh, we're trying to do. I would agree. It's tough. It's always been tough and it's getting tougher. seems like the markets are going to be more and more efficient with more and more information out there. It's more and more difficult to try to find an edge. Can you walk me through your acquisition process? You know, do you bring in the teams from operations to uh, help out in the process? You know, how long is it? Do you sequence it in certain, you know, do you do a certain due diligence in the phase one initially or, or at the end, things like that? And what are the most common problems you see in a multifamily acquisition that causes problems? Yeah. So we have on my investments team, basically three parts of our investment team. We have an acquisitions team that's focused on going out and underwriting deals and putting out offers and then shepherding that deal through the process. We have an actual due diligence team that focuses on running due diligence for both our acquisitions and our dispositions. And then we have a capital markets and closing team that's focused on handling our debt execution and handling. We we bring in larger ticks, kind of over $5 million. We'll incorporate those into our transactions from time to time. And so coordinating with them, getting that all worked out. So our process looks like, let's just say it's a, a marketed deal, right? So deal comes to market. Generally, we have about a month before offers are going to be due. And so we'll get those materials. The first thing we'll do is load it up on our pro forma. So we have a discounted cash flow model like everybody else does. So we'll load that up and look at the deal metrics and see how does this compare to all the other deals that we've looked at. And since we underwrite essentially every deal in the market, we have a really good sense of how does this deal compare to that other deal that sold two months ago that was a similar vintage and a similar size, but a little bit different submarket. You know, does it triangulate correctly, right? And so we look at that and say, are we even in the ballpark here? If we're in the ballpark, and sometimes when we're not, we'll just go tour it, take a look at it, fine tune our model so that we can you know, just get a lot closer once we actually go and see it, decide, does it need paint? Does it need interior renovations? What's the scope? All that. Our deal managers are going to look at that, incorporate it in our model. We'll fine tune our value. When offers are due, we'll put in a first round offer. Again, that essentially just tells you, are you in the ballpark on this deal? If we're not, drop it, move on to the next deal. If we are in the ballpark, then we'll start to spend some more resources on that where we will have our local construction team go out and take a look at it. Sometimes a regional manager will go out and take a look at it. We'll definitely be calling our other properties in the area and asking their opinion of it. A lot of deals we buy are comps of deals that we own. So there's a lot of internal knowledge about them. A lot of times we'll have people who are at our other properties who used to work at a deal that we're looking at and they'll call us up and say, because we circulate a list of what we're looking at, hey, you know, you really need to look at the decks on this property because it was a problem when I was there, right? So we have that kind of feedback going on and then we'll get deck quotes and we'll have our operations team look at our operating budget and give an initial sign off on that to make sure that we don't have any big misses on staffing or turnover or something like that, right? So at that point, we're pretty firm in terms of our price. You know, it's, it's pretty rare that something's going to come up that would be a big variance. That's what we're going to use to put in our final offer. The offering process has changed a little bit because there's so much demand for multifamily now. So usually the way it happens is first offer, about a week later, there's a second offer. And then you get on the phone and have an interview with a seller. And they'll ask all kinds of questions about where does your capital come from? What are you using for debt? You know, what are your assumptions for CapEx? All that. And then they'll let you put in a final offer, so your third offer, 
And then they'll pretty much select a buyer based on that. And if we're selected, then usually these days, it's not uncommon for non-refundable deposit money to have to get posted when a purchase contract is signed. So for us, often I'd say kind of a typical timeline right now is we'll go out and do due diligence on a deal, which means walking all the units, doing a full lease audit on properties, getting third parties out to the properties on site. We'll have all that happen within a week after being awarded a deal. And then we'll go non-refundable and sign a purchase contract perhaps 10 days after we're awarded that deal. You know, we'll negotiate the purchase contract in the meantime. And like I said, about 80% of our deals are sellers who we worked with before. So you know, we have that contract ready to go. So we sign that contract. We're non-refundable. We're going to go out and pick a lender. That you know, takes probably two weeks to go out and get quotes, get a lender. We tend to be lately either life company or agencies on the lending side, especially for those long-term fixed rate deals. And uh, so we'll select that lender. We'll rate lock because we're using long-term fixed rate debt. And then we move on to closing. And you know, after we're rate locked and non-refundable, the process is actually a lot simpler because we've done all that hard work up front. So then it's just, you know, it's arranging our equity. We'll go out. We don't typically raise our equity until after we've gone non-refundable on the deals. So we'll raise the equity later, you know, and we have usually about a month, sometimes with a 30-day extension on top of that to get the deal closed after we're non-refundable. I'd like to ask you a question about a, a future CapEx issue that I think it's coming our way. You have a lot of doors, you have a lot of cars on your um, properties. At some point, we may have to retrofit our parking garages to electrified cars. Incredibly expensive. Any thoughts about that process? When it'll happen? If it's going to happen? Will we have other innovations that may lower the cost for a tenant's need to quote unquote fill their car up with electricity? Yeah, it has started. We are seeing some demand for that. Our deals are mostly suburban walk-up type of product as opposed to urban, high, like type one high-rise construction. I think in urban high-density deals, the construction costs to incorporate that are going to be a lot higher. They're just tough to implement that. You know, with the suburban, it's a little bit easier. We haven't yet seen a tremendous amount of demand from residents for it. And so often we'll have a couple of spaces where they can charge cars you know, a couple of spaces get, they get pretty good use. If you have a lot of spaces, often they don't get good use yet. I think that's going to change. Tax credits have had, and in other incentives have made it a lot easier to install those charging stations. And so at a number of properties, we've done it really primarily using incentives and then had the benefit of that to kind of see if there's demand. So I think it's just going to kind of happen incrementally as that demand increases over time. And I think um, it's going to be easier with some properties than others. And those properties are just going to be the ones that end up drawing the electric car users. You've written a book. Why did you write it? And what's it about? Yeah, so I did write a book. It's called Investing in uh, Real Estate Private Equity. And it's under the pseudonym Sean Cook. And I wrote it because I had a lot of people who would reach out to me, friends who would say, should I invest in this real estate deal? And, you know, they would send over offering information and, and I was looking at all these different deals and I just thought there's got to be you know, some material out there that tells potential passive investors how to evaluate deals. And I had a really hard time finding it. And so over time, I, I sort of had this little set of notes that I would write and I would send them to people who would ask me this question and say, well, here are the things to look for. And I would have all these notes. And then it sort of grew into this other thing. 
And so I ended up writing this book that's essentially a handbook for people to go out and invest in an LP position in syndicated real estate deals. And so it was really fun to write because, like I said, I wrote it under a pseudonym. And there are a lot of books out there who the whole goal is just to sell their real estate investment or sell their method of investing in real estate. And it's just a very schlocky kind of industry, which you know made me feel kind of dirty. And so I just wrote this book just for fun. And it was literally just if two people buy this book, that's great. And I, you know, I'm just doing it for my own kind of entertainment. And so I did that and I put it on Amazon and actually it's had a tremendous amount of traction kind of all over the industry. And we've met, you know, people have reached out to me you know, because of it. And it's been a lot of fun to see people, you know, read it. And it was great. And I think it's different because from other books, because, you know, I take the position that again, I don't care whether you invest with us or not. Here's what I really think about how you should invest with, in real estate. And I don't think a lot of groups, the incentives are aligned well with investors. And I think a lot of investors look at the wrong factors when they decide whether to invest in the deal. You know, they don't really realize what is going to create risk for them and what isn't. And so I thought it was important just to give my own opinion about that, which is stick to the basics, you know, lower leverage, good real estate, pick a good operator, and really having a lot of humility in terms of not being able to predict the future. And once you sort of accept that it's very hard to predict the future. It allows you to actually change your investment strategy in real estate in a way that you know helps you make better kind of risk-adjusted investment decisions. And so that was kind of my whole point on, on writing the book. What are two or three of the most common mistakes that LP investors make in making a decision about whether or not to invest in a particular deal? So a couple of mistakes people make are First of all, they take investment projections that GPs give them at face value. And speaking as someone who's put together a lot of pro formas, there are so many assumptions that go into those pro formas. And invariably, they're going to be wrong in one way or another. And invariably, GPs are going to be optimistic about the assumptions that they put in there. And counterintuitively, the weakest GPs the sponsors who need to raise money the most are going to have the most optimistic assumptions in there because they're working really hard to raise money. The sponsors who really have more investors than they need, they don't care. They're fine having really conservative assumptions that they're going to outperform because they don't need to sell it. The money's coming to them anyway. And so I think investors look at that and say, oh, well, uh, this is a you know, this says it's going to be an eight cash on cash. I am going to count on getting an eight you know, percent cash on cash. And I'm going to budget that into my financial situation. And so I think there's just a lot, there's too much faith that's placed in the return projections, especially given the tremendous amount of uncertainty there is in the world. And, you know, COVID, the financial crisis, these things happen. And when you're in a real estate deal for 10 years, something's going to go weird at some point. And you're also going to have great years at some point. And so it's really important just to buy good real estate and have a good sponsor there who's going to be able to have the wherewithal and the financial capability and the platform to be able to make it through those things. Because, you know, it's one thing to have rents go up and down. But if you have a property that gets into financial distress, all of a sudden you can't get back from that and you lose your entire investment. And so you want to put yourself in a situation where you're not going to be in distress during any point in the investment period. So I think that's one mistake. I think another mistake is investors really focus on structures that have low fixed fees and high promotes. 
And so, you know, I think a lot of GPs say, look, I am aligned with you. I only do well if this deal does well. And the reality is, if you have a GP that's only incentivized by deals doing really well, what that incentivizes them to do is take a lot of risk. Because if something goes bad, they don't have any downside. They you know, it's just a zero for them. And if things go really well, they get all the upside. So they're going to lever up. They're going to have a risky investment strategy. They're going to pick deals in the first place that are more high volatility. So I think that that has a big impact that's hidden on um, the types of investments that get made. And I think just having a sponsor just make money for putting deals together, not the worst thing in the world. You want kind of a mix of those things. You want people to you know look for upside, but you also want them to be liquid and solvent if you know the transaction market goes flat. So I think that's out there. And um, probably the last thing I'd say is having an honest assessment of your own tolerance for risk is really important because once you invest in you know real estate private equity that's an investment that's in there for many years and you can't take that back unless it's at a big discount right and so you really need to if you're investing in real estate in times that are good you need to know that you have the stomach to handle that real estate investment and not have that money come back in times that are bad. And so it's just important to really kind of be honest with yourself up front about what you're looking for and what you're willing to tolerate. I agree with all your points. Uh, very good points. Speaking of books, do you have any other books you recommend for any reason across any subject that you really found uh, enlightening? I do. My I have like an embarrassingly wide <laughs> type of books that I read, but in the investment space, I just finished up, it was a series called Investing for Adults uh, that William Bernstein put out. And so he had, I think, four books. The last one, I think it's called Rational Expectations. And it's a, that's a great series. And you know, he has a very, it's a little bit more technical uh, set of books than probably, you know, most personal finance books are. And he talks a lot about you know, portfolio allocation and construction, historical, you know, volatility of asset classes and correlation going back hundreds of years, you know, talking about specific ages of investors and different kind of considerations. And it's really technical and interesting. And, and I enjoyed that book. That was a lot of fun, especially because what I do in the multifamily space is just such a small slice right. of people's experience. And so it's just fun to look at well, how are people thinking about their entire investment world right now? Because I'm sure you're the same way. Like we get lost, we have our blinders on with our industry, right? And you, everything in the world is is multifamily investing. And I think to myself, wow, multifamily is so expensive right now. And then you go out and look at the investment alternatives and everything is expensive right now. And so, you know, taking that step back and saying, how do I construct a diversified portfolio? And how does this asset fit with that asset was, I, I don't know, I thought that was kind of fun. And probably no surprise, you know, from my comments earlier, I, I love the Black Swan. Uh, that's a classic from, you know, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb. I mean, that's one that really, I can, I think kind of shaped the way that I think about risk and, you know, investment in light of risk. So that's a really good one. I thought Taleb was a very, uh, when I read that first, uh, how long? Quite a few years ago, it it was very it was a very good book. From his personality on Twitter, quite irascible on Twitter, but he's a <laughs> he's an excellent thinker. <laughs> so excellent thinker. I agree with you there. I don't necessarily like to listen to all of his interviews, but I did thoroughly enjoy that book. <laughs> yeah, all his stuff. He did the Fool by Randomness, Black Swan. Yeah, what was a third book. I want to say Skin in the Game. Skin in the Game, something like that. Yeah, he wrote a book about aphorisms called The Bed of. It's a Latin word. I don't, I can't, 
a crust or something like that, <laughs> yeah. but it's a bunch of aphorisms, you know, maybe 30, 40 pages, but an incredible thinker. Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. So those are good. I have two books that I always leave in my van because I, I have young kids and I'm sitting around while they're doing sports. And so I have uh, Wooden, John Wooden's book, A Lifetime of Reflections on the Court, uh, which is him talking about his method of, of approaching life, more or less. And, you know, his I, you know, his humility and kind of focus on process rather than outcome. And I just kind of love the way he thinks. And then the other book I have that I've really been enjoying is The Emperor's Handbook, which is a new translation of the meditations uh, by Marcus Aurelius. And, you know, that's fun in a different way because, you know, basically, you know, those thoughts have lasted uh, for a long time and they're, it's surprisingly relevant today. So if I'm just going to pick up a book and, and read them, those are, those are two that are, I always have kind of kicking around. I think stoicism has stood the test of time. Thank you so much for all your comments and thoughts. It's been a great interview. I'll put all your book recommendations in the show notes for everyone, particularly your, the book that you wrote. I think that'd be a great book for everyone to pick up if you're a potential LP investor. But uh, thanks again. I really appreciate it. It's been a great interview. Well, thanks so much for having me on it. I appreciate it. Looking forward to the next one. You can find Paul's contact information in the show notes. We'll also leave a link to Paul's book and to his book recommendations. Thank you for listening to this episode of In-Depth Commercial Real Estate. You can reach us at info at in